man, 2020, what a damn shit show. Thanks to the amazing folk at Bella Catering who have survived the COVID-19 outbreak in Australia as we are starting to wake back up for sponsoring and bringing us this week's show. If you guys want to cater, and you're in Oz, bellacatering.com.au. Catering doesn't mean planning a huge event. It might just mean that for the first time in many months, you've been able to have a stack of your friends and family over and who the hell wants to cook? You're probably doom scrolling through your Twitter, shitting bricks that now North Korea is firing off shit at South Korea. Go to bellacatering.com.au. Get off Twitter just for a split second. Thank you for listening. Bellacatering.com.au. Now, all the President's Minutes. This week, we watched on in horror as African-American George Floyd died under the weight of a white policeman's knee. He called for his mother. He screamed the words, I can't breathe. Despite this, the policeman kept pressing. And eight minutes later, George Floyd was dead. The Australian response? Thank goodness that stuff doesn't happen here. Back when I played for Collingwood, I went for a coffee with a couple of teammates. Two policemen followed me into the cafe. They went on to ask for my ID. They wanted to know where I'd been and what I was doing. Why? There'd been a robbery nearby. When I proved who I was, they just scoffed and walked away. The same thing happened last week when I was walking through Carlton in my dress clothes on my lunch break. Speak to anyone from our mob and they'll tell you the same stories. They'll tell you the same stories and much worse. I've been one of the lucky ones, lucky that when I've been racially profiled, I haven't wound up in jail, bashed or found dead in custody. Over 400 Indigenous people have died in custody since 1991. Of those who died since 08, half of the women and a third of the men did not receive appropriate medical care. One of those was David Dungay Jr., a 26-year-old Dungadi man from Kempsey. He died in Long Bay Prison Hospital after being restrained face down by up to five guards. Amongst his final words, I can't breathe. But thank goodness that stuff doesn't happen here, right? This is Yoka Footy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today, live from the Strand, live from the Criterion Closet. No, not really. Uh, but, but nonetheless, uh, live from his home library is a, a critic I really admire, an editor at pretty much the coolest publication that has ever existed in the world. And, uh, and, uh, and a man that I'm thankful to say is uh, safe and sound in the United States, in the tumultuous United States right now. Uh, this is a crazy project that is seeming to run the gamut of political and social issues, both locally in Australia and internationally. And um, sometimes like the nexus of this thing is, you know, it's actually swallowing people that I know overseas as well. But it's my distinct pleasure to bring this man's well, near unparalleled cinematic mind to 
the show. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just a real treat to talk to him. David Freer, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Oh my God, thanks for having me. You know, you come for the insight, but you stay for the unabashed flattery. <laughs> that's, that's, I'm going to add that to every invitation on the show. Come for the insights, but please stay for the flattery that I'll undoubtedly give you. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. Um, I, uh, we have mutual friends in Bill Gabiri who, uh, who kicked off the show this time. He said, rather than being in the middle of the episodes of the run, he said, I want to be on the first one just in case this thing crashes and burns. Um, so thank you, Bilga, for that sentiment in episode one. We're still going. We're still firing here at, uh, in the mid-50s of uh, Alan J. Pakula's 1976 masterpiece. Can I just ask you very quickly, this film, what does it mean to you and how have you engaged with it over the years? Um, that's a great question. Uh, I don't, I can't, I can't pinpoint exactly when as a kid, I'm a child of the seventies. And so I don't know why, but for some reason I became fascinated with Watergate when I was a kid. So I was aware, I mean, I was fascinated with a lot of things, movies included, but like for some reason, I, the the entire notion of Watergate, even the name kind of like, there's something fascinating about it to me. And so as a very young kid, I would go to the library and like I, I took out the Woodward and Bernstein book and read it and um, had just, I would find myself kind of poring over books about Nixon and this weird thing that had happened that I couldn't quite grasp. Uh, and so by the time I came around to the movie, um, like I knew who Haldeman and Ehrlichman and uh, Mitchell were. Uh, and I, you know, was a huge fan of Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford. Like, I was lucky enough in that I grew up in um, in an age when the when like the VCR revolution was just kind of beginning. Yes. So there were a, a couple of really good video stores in my neighborhood, and I was really just kind of wanted the minute that you could go to a video store and there would be shelves and shelves and shelves of American classic movies from you know the 30s up to the 70s the early 70s that you could watch i just tried to immerse myself in um in watching as much as i could and getting caught up on stuff and the actors like i liked and the filmmakers i was starting to just you know discover what a filmmaker was what a director did why an alfred hitchcock movie or a john ford movie was different than other things i was seeing um i was just trying to catch up which is a which is a long way of saying that by the time I got to this film, at first, it was a great Dustin Hoffman movie to me. Yes. Later, it became a great Robert Redford movie to me. And then a little bit later, around the time I started college, it was a really great Alan J. Pakula film to me. Um, and now when I watch it, I'm just... What it means to me is it means that you can... It, for a moment in Hollywood, you could make a very smart, intelligent star-driven film that a lot didn't seem to be happening. There weren't a lot of explosions. Uh, Sharks with chainsaws weren't jumping out (laughs) from bushes and attacking people. And yet um, you could make compelling cinema. Uh, And I I love that. I think that's that's why I go back to this movie um, quite often. It's it's funny that I I love that we haven't really talked about it, but it's like how you are growing with who you love at the time. Like for me, I've 
this movie's intersected with me on runs and I do them like you. It's like when you catch up, it's like, all right, I'm in a Hoffman mode. I'm going to watch every Hoffman film. And so then you go through and you run, you do a run and you're like, okay, I'm going to watch all the Redfords. And then you go back and you watch all the Bacoolas. And it's like, if you're one of those completists, you, you sort of have these intersecting movies where you come back at them in a whole bunch of different ways. But I, I, I totally agree with you that a really smart, somewhat slow, really compelling and hypnotic thing that does not require you to be told everything. And then in a lot of ways is kind of like, as transgressive as Hollywood gets, because it's not just reaffirming the status quo. Like it's very optimistic, yeah. um, but any movie that doesn't reaffirm the status quo really in any way from a big Hollywood film is kind of like, they, they stick out like sore thumbs because they just don't exist. Like everything's reinforcing, keep doing what we're doing, keep living how we're living, whatever political, socio-political environment it is. And those ones that don't, it, it feels like they're outliers and especially ones that get so louded and recognized and become like canon immediately. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I keep comparing this film to network because they came yeah. out around the same, I mean, but I think it's the same year, although I, I don't remember which came out first or, or what, you know, what the exact chronology is. Uh, but it's interesting because like, look, these two reporters work for the Washington post. Yes. Like, you know, not a, not a small paper, not a local rag. <laughs> yes. Uh, but they're still the underdogs and they're still fighting, you know, they're fighting the powers that be. And in the end, they end up winning. Whereas some, you look at something like Network, which is so incredibly Ugh. pessimistic and saying like, you know, fight the powers that be and you don't have a chance. Like there are, <laughs> I can't remember the Ned Beatty speech, you know, verbatim, but it was sort of like, you know, there are no more countries now there's just AT&T and you know Viacom and you know Gulf and Western and all that uh, and it's you know yeah it's it's amazing to see how um how subversive that entire notion was even in like the mid 70s yeah it's and and both of those films are harnessing the same energy and with Pacula and the team that whole like incredible alchemy that superstar lineup of people in front of behind the camera they're like well we at least have the the sort of true north or the guiding star that says this we have to stick to at least stick to the facts you know we have to we we have got we're going to take all the adjectives out as Lee Schreiber character says in spotlight which I just love that little turn of phrase like we got to take all the adjectives out because ultimately we're going to be held at most to account for the level of truth telling that we do in this, it has to be really rigorously fact-checked and everything like that. Whereas I feel like it does have that same energy and network just is afforded the opportunity to be just so much angrier about it. Like I was like, I found myself writing a review the other day and I used the turn of phrase of like, you know, I was I unintentionally was using that turn of phrase of like, you know, there's, in this world, there's no more nations, there's corporations. And then I was just like, is that network? Did I just network? this review, like, did I just accidentally Ned, like did channeling Ned Beatty? It just sometimes happens, but that's like when, when the devil walks into your movie and tells you that there's no hope, like, you know, that, you, you know, it's announcing itself as like, I'm di this is different. And I think that's why net network's scary. Like at least in, at least we know that the system is kind of broken in, in all the president's men, but the comfort is that if you just keep working, if it's a tireless thing, but it's a pursuit to be better. 
Whereas network, network just drops the devil in in the third act and goes, nah, nah. I can't remember which exact minute it is of all the president's men where it's, uh, it's Jason Rohrbards as, as Bradley with his feet up on the desk and he's looking over their copy. Yes. And he take, you see the red pen come out. Oh yeah. And he just starts like crossing out lines after lines. Imagine that for 122 minutes. And that's next. <laughs> Like that uh, sustained that's that's network yeah we met and still like you know both those movies 1976 what a year what a year for movies my god and and in just a couple of years those those but but lumet and that whole thing hold and done away peter finch you know that's just like absolutely incredible well let's uh, i've given you a i've given you a cracker of a minute and this sequence is so wonderful and you talk about like compelling i just uh, in memory i think i talked to a few people and like you kind of think of them as like one conversation when you're sort of a bit far away from it but like the two redford on the phone investigations like he must you you know talking about the man he must be so proud of the work that he did in those scenes because it's like it's a guy holding a phone you think maybe the actor or actress is off the camera, like talking to him in a dialogue or, you know, at worst, like an assistant director, like standing there, like giving him no real performance to engage with and just him on a phone. And holy hell, is he just riding this absolutely, this rapids down this, uh, just sort of gathering information wherever he can, pivoting, being so organic. It's just such a beautiful two scenes in this movie and your minute is smack bang right in the middle of it. Uh, yeah, I think my minute's at the end. Yeah. It's, I think it's at the end of the conversation, which is when you get, it's right after the big movie star moment that you get one of the very few kind of like movie, movie moments you get in All the President's Men. But yeah, let's, you know, would you want to watch the scene and then we'll talk about it? Let's do that. Let's do that. Yes, in, in Washington. Now, what he did with it, I, I really do not know. I see. Uh, were there any other checks, sir, that you might be aware of that could have come? That, that's, that's all I, I had to say. Mr. McGregor, Mr. Dahlberg, I'm sorry. Thank you very much. Bernstein. I think I got a lead on Dolph. Uh, I've just, I got it. What? I just talked to him. I just hung up from him. Bernstein, listen, it goes all the way to Stans. What are you talking about? It goes all the way to Stans. He gave the check to Stans for the committee to reelect. Did he say that? He said it. I've got it on my notes. Jesus. It's down on record, Bernstein. And that money winds up in the back of a Watergate burger. Uh, yes. So it's interesting. Um, it's interesting where this scene falls, for, where this minute in particular falls, because uh, what what precedes it is that you get to sit in and watch the actual sausage get made. Yes. You know, you get to sit, uh, you get to see a bunch of old white guys sitting around a table, you know, talking about what's going to be above the fold and what's going to be on the, on the, on page one. And it's interesting because you've just experienced this like massive breakthrough in their investigation. And yet it's still being treated like it's a small local story and they're, you know, they can't really get anybody to, to, pay attention to it to give it the kind of the, the gravity that it deserves. Uh, but 
the great thing is what comes before this, which is that it's the end of, I believe it's like a six or a six and a half minute slow zoom scene in which, well, first off, you know, to talk a little bit about the beginning of that, the depth of field in this film and oh, the depth of field in the beginning of this shot that ends in this minute um, is absolutely phenomenal. Um, I mean, the Prince of Darkness, Gordon Willis, he's got so many great, just great images and great uses of that, like, you know, the darkness and the shadow throughout this film. And then to have all these scenes in this like fluorescent lit office um, and still have them be just as compelling and still look at them and feel like, oh yeah, this is a Gordon Willis shot. Like I, you know, I, I could tell this is a Gordon Willis shot uh, is wonderful. Um, but, and, and for a man who hates the zoom, he hates zooms, but, well, but, but, but the glacial zoom, like that, that yeah. glacial zoom is, he's like, no, I hate a distracting zoom that takes you out of the minute. But that one that is Im- almost imperceptible where you're just creeping into someone's personal space is like signature for him. It's, so it's funny. I, I was rewatching the film this morning and I, I was watching that sequence very carefully because I knew we were going to be talking about it today. And I started thinking like, oh, wow, it's one of the, you know, it's one of the few times that you know, Willis really implores the slow zoom. And by slow zoom, we're talking like, it's like fucking wavelength. <laughs> yes. Like, yeah. It's like creeping, creeping zoom. And then I suddenly remembered like, you know, oh, right. He's also the cinematographer that is responsible for one of the greatest, most famous zoom outs in all of cinema, which is, you know, I believe in America. America has made my fortune. And you watch this, you know. Almost the greatest beginning to any movie ever. (laughs) I I mean, no argument here. And, you know, you're so close on this, you know, on on the man's face. And then it slowly pulls back, slowly pulls back, slowly pulls back as he's telling the story. And then, and then you see Don Corleone and suddenly like you're in The Godfather. Uh, But it's just, it's so, it's so beautiful how you realize it's a perfect encapsulation, this entire sequence, but this minute especially of why, why Redford was interested in pursuing the story and how he really affected not just getting the story up on screen, but getting the book made on which this is based. Yes. Um, there's, a, there's a story. I've seen it in a couple of different places. It's in, I'd actually found a Rolling Stone piece that we had done in 76 on the film. Really? I think it was a cover story, but I'm not entirely sure, but it's, it's a long piece. It's like, um, I think it's, it's probably, uh, it's, it's a lot of work. I was going to say it's like 40,000 words, but it's like a real deep dive into the making of the film and the reception of it and all that. And it talks about how, uh, in like Woodward got a call when the investigation was still going on. I think this was a bit about 72 and how they were starting to kind of him and Bernstein were kind of starting to work on a book and the focus was really on Watergate and how this thing was kind of turning into a cover up and what they were uncovering. And supposedly it was Redford who'd said, no, I think the real story is you guys. Like the real story is the investigation and the work that you guys are doing. And, um, and this is great. Hold on. I'm just going to, I'm going to, I want to make sure I don't misquote this. It's from the beginning of the Rolling Stone piece where uh, the lead starts off with, uh, Woodward getting a knock on his door and uh, it says a taxi dropped the man off at the curb. Woodward answered the door to greet the rumpled figure, broken foot sore and full of questions. There it was, Woodward recalled 
the exhausted reporter and it's Robert Redford basically showing up at his house, exhausted, tired, and still pushing, pushing, pushing. Like, can I see your notes? Like, I'm, I'm so, I can't, I can't go on. I must go on. Bob, what else have you got for me? And that was when, um, that was when he was like, yeah, I think he finally, he finally figured it out that it's really just pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing to try and get these answers. And so you get this great slow zoom as he's on the phone and he keeps getting rebuffed and they have been kind of waiting for this, this big break to happen. And slowly everything else in the office is being, is receding. It's focusing out and it's just getting tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter on him uh, until the time you get to basically like the movie star level close up of him. And right before this minute starts, he's on, he's on the phone with um, with Kenneth Dahlberg, a proper citizen. <laughs> by, by the way, oh, this is a running motif. You'll notice this in the film. It's a running motif that they when they talk to people, and they come to people's houses and they show up and they're like, "Yes, we're you know uh, Woodward and Bernstein from the Post." But like nine out of ten times, the one of the first things people say are like, "I'm a proper citizen." Like there's nothing going on here that's um, immoral. Yes. You know, we're a, we're a decent household. We're a moral household. Um, and people are immediately on the defensive. And so he's talking to him after he's been hung up on, and um, he finally gets the break. And it's you know I gave the check to Marie Stans, and that's when you get the great you know the great look in his face of just he, sort of like he looks up. It, that, that it's like the whole time he's been like focusing sort of something in the middle of distance on his desk, and he does that look like. He yeah, it's like this, this dogged, off. tired reporter's on the phone, and suddenly he hears what he wants to hear. And who looks into the camera but handsome McBlue Eyes, <laughs> movie star, <laughs> with this look on his face like, "By gum, we've cracked it!" <laughs> and uh, it's it's phenomenal. I mean, like I got you know I got chills just recounting it. And then when this minute starts, he's basically like, he he has he knows he's got what he needs, and he's so incredibly excited. He's so excited, in fact, that he gets the name wrong. Gets the name wrong. Which they, you know, he did it in character, so they left it in. Absolutely great. Like, just, a, I'm a huge fan of when that happens um, in movies. And that's, and, uh, that's, that's the gold dust. Because people yeah. remember the name. People almost remember the name stuff up more than they remember any of the detail about how he frames his questions or his, anything like that. It's the name stuff up. Mr. Gr- McGregor, oh, Mr. Dahlberg. Like, you love it. You love to see it. Yeah, it's like, you know, the, when it's the, it, you know, little Bill, what's wrong? My wife's in the driveway with an ass in her cock. <laughs> and Paul Thomas Anderson doesn't cut away. It just, it, it almost seems more in character. It's, and that's, you know, to me, that just feels like such a 70s thing. You associate that kind of stuff with like, it's, you know. And it, there's no there's no one more uh, at that time of his career, obviously there's no one doing Altman better than PTA. And also there's yeah. no more of an Altman character nearly than William H. Macy. Like, and the Coen brothers see that as well. Like a guy who he cannot get anything right, but you love what you just cannot take your eyes off of it. You just want to watch every single second that he's on screen. You just love it. Yeah. He's, he's man. That's a good, that's a really good, that's a really great pickup. That's a good movie too another great one and then and you get to you know dustin hoffman calls and he's like i finally i I think we got a lead here and he goes 
he goes, uh, no, 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 we've, we've got it. I, I listened to the episode, the minute that you did with, um, with Manola Dargis before, the, before this one. And she talks so much about how it's like one of the first times you actually get to see these two characters and by extension, two movie stars interact. And so to hear, like, to hear both of them kind of celebrating this moment, it, it feels really wonderful because you don't necessarily, especially at this point in the movie, you're not thinking of them as a kind of Butch and Sundance style team. Like, yes. these two guys aren't going to go out and make the sting. Nah. They're going to do this. And uh, it's also, it's funny, to, I keep watching this movie. I don't know if you have this experience, but every time I've watched this movie, and as much as I love it and I get drawn into it and stuff, I always have that Mike Nichols anecdote about the graduate running in the back of my head. <laughs> yeah. Please tell Where, the audience what you're talking about. Right. I know what you're going to say. So uh, when Mike Nichols was starting to make the graduate, he was trying to figure out who he was going to get to play Benjamin Braddock. And Redford was like, well, you should cast me because they had worked together on Broadway. I mean, they did barefoot in the park together on Broadway and like, you know, they knew each other. And he goes, you could never, you can't play Braddock. And he goes, what are you talking about? He says, you know, California golden boy. I'm perfect. I'm a, I can do this. And he goes, you wouldn't get it. Um, you know, when was the last time you struck out with a girl? And Redford's answer was, what do you mean? <laughs> At which point Mike Nichols was like, yeah, you're not getting this part. <laughs> There's no way. Which, you know, then goes to Dustin Hoffman and turns him into a, you know, bona fide movie star. Uh, but just to hear those, the two of them on the phone and like really celebrating this and feeling like, okay, no, we've got, we've got something, you know, we keep, we keep going into the office and saying like, we're, you know, we haven't cracked the story yet. We don't know what the story is. You know, we, we haven't had the luck, the stroke of luck that we need to make this work. Um, and this is the kind of, this is really the first few steps on the yellow brick road that they're going to take. That's going to lead to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. It's a really ballsy move for Redford then as a producer later on to come back to Hoffman. And it's been mentioned throughout the show, but I just also just want to like, there's no one bigger in new Hollywood really than Hoffman. Like it's Hoffman, it's Pacino, it's De Niro. Like it's their era. It's Nicholson, Hackman. It's all these guys who immerse themselves in They're gritty, they're dirty, they're imperfect, they're relatable. Um, And it's so ballsy for him to be like, I'm going to go up against this guy who is literally on, he's on career best form for like a decade at this point, Hoffman, and to go up against him and go, I am actually going to show you that I can go toe to toe with one of these guys and it's okay. Like I can totally do it. It's, it's, it's a, it's a move that you wish that more big actors would take and less ego driven moments would get, would get in there. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny when you talk about the 70s and and 70s male movie stars in particular, uh one camp or one instinct is to basically go, oh, yeah, uh the 70s, it's the era um it's the era of Dustin Hoffman and Al Pacino and Robert De Niro and the entire notion that like people who couldn't have been considered a leading man 10 or 15 years prior are suddenly like, you know, top of the marquee names. Or you go, oh yeah, it's the '70s. It's the decade of Burt Reynolds and Clint yeah. Eastwood and Robert yes. Redford, and these are guys who could essentially be leading men um, any day, any about, decade, yeah, yeah, just about any time whatsoever. Uh, but you don't necessarily see like you'll see Gene Hackman and Al Pacino in a movie, but you won't necessarily see Clint Eastwood and Al Pacino in a film. Like, yes, you won't see De Niro acting against Burt Reynolds. 
And so when, um, when you've got somebody like Redford and Dustin Hoffman, you know, and that was a huge appeal for Redmond or for Redmond. I'm conflating them. Really <laughs> Redmond. What's, what's Dargis keep calling him? Woodstein? Woodstein. Woodstein. <laughs> yeah. Um, for for Red, you know, that was part of the appeal for Redford for doing this is he's like I really when I looked at Woodward and Bernstein I love the contrast that you had this one guy who was a Republican and one guy who was um, you know a liberal Democrat you had one guy that was this tall blonde dude and one guy that was this short dark haired person one guy that was like the ultimate wasp and the other guy that was just very you know characteristically Jewish yeah and uh, to see these this kind of Mutt and Jeff combination working together um, and being both supportive and kind of competitive the way that the real Woodward and Bernstein actually were. Um, it just makes for such a great dynamic. And, uh, and then when you hear the two of them actually kind of, you know, Redford, who's known for a slightly more, what's the word I'm looking for? A, a slightly more nuanced and subtle performance style than what we're used to with mid seventies, Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. Hoffman um, is, Hoffman is buzzing over the screen. He's all over it. Like he's the rat. Yeah. It's the rat's Rizzo. That's this is, you know, it's the, yeah, he's, he's just doing, doing everything at this time. I just, I was just working on a Clint Eastwood list in fact, and I rewatched Bridges of Madison County, which I hadn't seen since it come since it come out. And then I, to kind of watch that. And then a couple of days later, watch this. It's so interesting because you've got Meryl Streep who is, this really expressive gesture field, like lots of business going on yeah. uh, type of actress and wonderful too. I don't mean that in a reasonable way whatsoever. Like I think she's the, if you want somebody who does really great screen business, like you can't ask for better than her. And then you've got Eastwood who's playing, you know, he's less stoic than he usually is when he's a cop or a gunfighter, but still very like, you know, the kind of strong silent type, you know, I'll be yeah. the one who's, you know, I don't think he's ever smiled as much as he did in like the first half. Pe- people were scared of how much he smiled, David, in, in <laughs> Bridges of Madison County. People were like, I can't do this. He smiled more in this movie than in 15. I'm out. I can't do it. You and- didn't smile this much when you worked against an orangutan. What is going on? <laughs> like, uh, and so it's to see, to see the, you know, those two, you really see those two performance styles contrast later and you mm. you get to see them do nice little bits of business with them i don't want to get ahead of ourselves but i know there's you know the scene coming up where they um they both go to jane alexander's apartment mm. and he goes she goes i'm a republican and he goes oh, don't worry i am too and they both kind of share that look at each other like what huh like that, beautiful that, little like and Pukula stays on it too like it's just he lets them have that moment together uh, to, to hear them like actually both getting super incredibly enthused on the phone together to really celebrate that victory is um, it's a wonderful moment. And it's, it's a small, it's a small victory, but it's so when you watch it later and you might not realize the gravity, but for them to, after all the business of like, no one cares, it's not important. And then to land just under the fold on the front page with this latest break, it's like, this thing's not going away. Like it's a great just narrative moment. We've spent so much time grinding through like contextualizing what is happening in Washington, contextualizing what's happening in the, within these guys and in the paper and all the politics, even the politics of the paper more than anything in that six minute scene that precedes this. But then for them to land on that front page under the fold, it's like, guys, we it, like, this isn't, this is not going to, A, it's not going away. And B, whatever dismissive things that they keep saying, 
should only make us go harder because it yeah. gets higher and higher and higher and higher. Yeah, that front page, the front, the above the fold front page thing is, um, it's, it's one of the first verifications that they're on or something. Yes. It, yeah. it's, a, it's a great sense of like, keep, keep following the money, keep pushing. Keep pushing. Keep um, there's, we're, we're, we are allowed to sort of cheat, um, uh, talking a little bit around the other minutes, but it's this, it's, I keep, I want, I want to talk to you about it because the Rolling Stone as a publication, and I guess it might like in, in the halls of, in the halls of your paper, really, it must be, um, uh, in the lineage of everything that you guys have ever done is speaking forthrightly, being on the front, being on the front of something, being embedded in something and usually takes on a political movement or on a person or on something like that, that is usually reserved for print. It's usually reserved for like being in a Rolling Stone feature or something like that. And so I guess when I look at presidents, I'm so blown away. And I was even revisited very recently, the social network again, I'm so blown away with the stones for something to be made into a film so close to the events happening and then feeling like you can revisit it like a feature that you talked about, like a 40,000 worder and feel like it's still, it's still humming with all of that urgency. And it's, it just usually is all of that is cleansed out of a Hollywood picture and all of that immediacy, all of that bravery, all of that audacity, it's usually cleansed out of it. But I'm just so shocked and want to talk to you a little bit about how it maintains that. It's so strange. Yeah, it's, um, it's it's weird to think that uh, the, both the movie and the book come out in fairly quick succession after the actual events have occurred. And you would assume that you would need, you know, anything from uh, a few years to a decade to have some sort of perspective on it, to yes. really look at it with clarity. And not to mention, like, what was the what was the general mood of America like in 1976? Like, did they really... It's why Vietnam. It took a while for Vietnam pictures to yeah. To kind of that that's come out. The, that's the, that's the case study, right? It's like the end right. of the earliest, re, and what we'd say is like other than John, <laughs> you spoke of a Clint Eastwood list. Other than John Wayne's The Green Berets, um, right. which which is like reflectively, everyone just goes that was a World War Two picture, just literally copy pasted out into Vietnam and it didn't work. And they realized how hard it didn't resonate and didn't work when it was released. But then later the sort of, you know, the canonical ones in the Vietnam genre, the platoons and the, and the apocalypse now is they're all kind of like on the precipice of the eighties and beyond really. Yeah. Like, and it's, I mean, the green berets is a great example because um, think about, think about the hunger for world war two movies that were happening while world war two was going on. Yeah. Like, you know, it was a bona fide genre and not just of, you know, battles that had happened a few months prior, but the entire notion of kind of louding warfare and selling combat and, and, and really being like, no, trust me, like we have these narratives that tell you what, what you're doing, you know, we're preserving freedom, democracy, and history. And, uh, and when they try to rebrand that with a World War II movie for the Vietnam War, to try to rebrand the Vietnam War as... <laughs> you know, um, World War II and Korea Redux, it just doesn't work. Like at no. that point, neither audiences, audiences aren't buying it. And um, 
and the war is you know quickly revealing itself that it's an entirely different conflict than what they're trying to make it out to be what the previous conflicts were uh so yeah you know and i don't think people wanted to deal with vietnam yet which is why it took people a while to it's why you know what the first real successful vietnam film is only partially about vietnam it's more about a bunch of guys who were you know hunters in pennsylvania and then play russian roulette yes and the vietnam war just happens to be one of the catalysts for you know what these things these things are happening but um so i think if you're an audience in 1976 and i don't care how much that book is a huge bestseller you're going like, do I really want to watch? I've, I've just been glued to the TV for the last few years watching these hearings and I've been seeing this at the news and I've completely lost faith in, in the government. Uh, why do I want to watch a movie about Watergate for another two hours? I don't care if two of the biggest <laughs> yeah. globally recognizable movie stars of the 70s are in it. And, um, and, you know, maybe that's why Redford was like, no, I really think the story is the journalist. Uh, you know, we're not going to watch, it's not inside the White House yeah. where you get to see, you know, Kissinger and Nixon on their knees praying. <laughs> it's really about. We save that for Nixon. We save that for Nixon later. We save all of the, all of the madness for Oliver Stone. We'll save the madness for Stone. <laughs> I feel like we should get satin baseball jackets that have that written on the back. Like I would wear one. That, I would. You know, Save the madness for Stone, baby. Sweaty mug on the back. logo <laughs> above it. I'm going to talk to Matt Zolzites shortly. I think you know we can we can oh, make yeah. that a, we can make that an authorized piece of merch, David. We can. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You want to talk Oliver Stone? Talk to talk to Matt. That guy yeah. knows. He knows more about he knows more about film in general, uh, but that filmmaker especially than I've forgotten like i mean or his brother what's what's the phrase he's forgotten more, more than we'll ever know yeah we'll ever know but the point being is that i think recasting the journalists as the hero and recasting journalism itself as the hero of the story uh is an interesting tact and and yet it's still you know it you could look at it one way as these these dogged shoe leather white knights you know, uh, pounding the pavement until the truth is, is literally drawn from the shadows into the light. Uh, but then you remember it's still very much a 70s movie. Like, I think people forget that uh, it actually, it, it ends with them having to take, they've taken three steps forward and have to take about five steps back. Yes. And, uh, and it also ends um, in a shot, in a, another thing I noticed when I rewatched it, that how, the scene that we're talking about, the minute that we're delving into, which is the end of that Zoom sequence, is kind of, uh, it sort of repeats itself somewhat at the, like the, I think it's the third from the last shot. Yep. Where, um, where you see completely in focus the TV with Richard Nixon um, accepting you know, the responsibility of his second term. And then a journalist in the midground, which is Redford, typing away and then a journalist in the background um, played by Hoffman, like typing away. I mean, you just, you can, you can hear Greg Tolan spinning in his grave <laughs> and what Willis is doing. And, uh, and the funny thing is, is that the TV itself in this shot is bigger than the actual journalists that you're seeing. It's dwarfing them. It's taking yeah. up more than a third of the screen and you have to, these guys in the background, 
And so you can look at it as a dour ending, which it, in a lot of ways it is because yeah. where it leaves you is Nixon. They didn't beat Nixon. No. You know, it, the committee to reelect the president was successful. And yet, and yet, it then dissolve. I think it's a dissolve. It dissolves to them uh, totally taking the screen now. Nixon's voice is barely heard in the background, but the typing... The typing is just... It's yes, up, and uh, and they, you know, the the message is not we won. The message is keep going. You know, what do you what do you do once the once the rock garden has been swept and you have enlightenment? You keep sweeping the rock garden, and they haven't hit an enlightenment yet, but we know that they will. History has already told us how this story ends, uh, and yet it's the doing of it. It's the keeping going. They could have quit. They could have said, well, we didn't bring a president down because he's president again. But they didn't do that. And that's why ultimately this film somehow ends up having its pessimism cake and eating its optimism. <laughs> oh, God. Well, you know, I'm all about a poetic out. And I think that having its pessimistic cake and eating its optimism too is is maybe the best way that I could possibly end this chat with you, David, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, my friend, and, and meeting you. And um, I don't think... Uh, I don't think there's a better sentiment to go out on right now internationally than keep going. And I think that that's what is probably driving me in this project and driving a lot of the great film minds and journos and just people who are listening is keep going, keep fighting, keep typing. If I could could offer my own parting sentiment, um, it's been, I don't know when this is going to go up, but we're watching this on the Sunday after the uh, the U.S. and various other cities throughout the world have been rocked by protests and, and have seen police violence and have seen uh, uh, an incredible lack of leadership or the powers inherent with leadership being horribly abused and it is incredibly tempting to fall into a pit of despair and yet to watch this movie, which still seems to be so urgent and so timely, you know, so many decades on, um, it's it, it was inspiring it was inspiring in its own way but like you can't you can't give up you're tempted to give up but you cannot give up and you're gonna and you're gonna hit roadblocks that make you want to give up yeah over and sometimes the people with you are gonna say you don't have it but yeah but keep going journal the freedoms of the press and journalism are gonna try and be squashed by the powers that be you you can't let them do that you have to keep pushing keep following the money Man, it's so hard not to let David Fear, the senior editor of Rolling Stone, have the final word there. That was so awesome. This has been such a a fun ride, a wild one, and David is absolutely amazing and just a huge advocate for the show. So thank you, David, for being a part of it. At David L. Fear is where you can find him on Twitter and all of his stuff. And, of course, you can buy the incredible, the trailblazing, the, the iconic Rolling Stone and read his stuff in there now. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for all being a part of the One Heat Minute Productions family. This has been All the President's Minutes at ATPM Pod on Twitter, oneheatminute.com to find us, mail at oneheatminute.com if you want to get in touch or at one Blake Minute. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on another episode soon.